So all throughout this fall, we are focused on one letter, one piece of correspondence from the Bible. It is known as the letter to the church at Rome from the Apostle Paul, or like we tend to call it, we call it the Book of Romans. And we hope that you've grabbed one of these. If you haven't, we'd love for you to grab one on the way out. There's at the table in the back. And we'd love for you to join us on the journey of leading and re leading the congregation through this important letter and this piece of correspondence. And as we've been walking through it, we've been talking about that Paul's whole point is answering the question, what is the gospel and its significance? And he describes the gospel in the following way. He says that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus defined the gospel as the declaration of the availability of God's kingdom power. And Paul reiterates that by saying God's kingdom, God's power. In fact, Paul here, don't miss this, is writing a letter to the most the, the strongest military, political power in the world. And he's like, that's not the strongest power in the world. This is the strongest power in the world. And as he's describing the gospel for them, he describes it as it unfolds in this way. What a mess. Sin is worse than you realize. What a gift. Grace is bigger than your struggles. What a God. Love is stronger than your circumstances. And what a difference. Peace is closer than you think. One of the primary reasons that people don't teach and preach systematically through the book of Romans is that it's very complicated and it's long. And this is our roadmap to make sure that we don't get lost in Paul's argument and the flow of this letter. So we're talking about, we're double-clicking on that first section, chapters one through three. What a mess. And I shared with you that basically the outline of Romans one through three is, it's bad, chapter one. Chapter 2, it's really bad. Chapter 3, it's really, really bad. So that's how all of this unfolds before us. Now, one of the stories that I want to share with you to try to help us, because I know I told you a few minutes ago that today's sermon is all about sin, is I know that the minute I say the word sin, that there's all kinds of different things that come into your mind, and there's a part of your mind that either puts up your guards or immediately wants to tune out. Something is getting lost in translation. Because you should want to lean into that term, not lean away from it. So let me see if I can explain it for you. I love the story of a guy who wanted to test the veracity, the truth of these, you know, translation services that they have on the internet that you can kind of copy and paste and put something into the internet and it translates it for you from one language into another. So what he decided to do is he decided to take something in English, then translate it to German, and then translate it from German back into English, and it should be the exact same thing, right? So this is what he decided to translate into German. Say it with me. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I ever get back. Let me root, root, root for the Bravos. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes you're out at the old ball game. So he translates that into German and then back into English. And this is what it is with an Arnold Schwarzenegger accent. Execute me to the ball play. Execute me with the masses. Buy me certain ground nuts and cracker stick fusig. I'm not interested if I ever receive back. Let me root, root, root for the main team. If they do not win, it is dishonor. 
for there are one, two, three impacts on you at the old ball play. That's not the same thing, right? Something seriously got lost in the translation. And what I want to tell you is that when most modern people hear about the word sin, what's happening when they hear that is something is getting lost in translation. So my, my total aim for this morning, using Romans 1 through 3, but particularly 3, is to help you be reacquainted with what that word really means for you and for me. So if you will, take out your Bibles or take out your outlines and go back to Romans chapter 1 with me for a minute. Let's recap some of this for a second. Because if you're looking at Romans chapter 1, he does his greeting, his prayer of thanksgiving, that kind of thing. How he longs to come and to be with them. And he talks about what the gospel is. And then starting in verse 18, this is where things start getting messy. Because he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. One of the words it's going to repeat over and over again. Paul doesn't start talking about sin by talking about sin. He starts talking about sin by using a very different term. A term he will actually use more often than the word sin. He is going to talk about in Romans 1, if you had to classify the back half of this chapter, it is about unrighteousness. Now, we tend to think of unrighteousness as a religious term, but we actually use this kind of language all the time. We'll say things like, hey, that's not right. Or we'll say, you know what? He's just not right. Or we will say, hey, are you and I all right? We understand that there's something about righteousness. Now, when we look at righteousness, what we're really saying is this. This is a very scholarly, rich Conwisher definition. It is okayness. Are you and I okay? When you look at your own life, I, am I okay? When I think about the world that we live in, are we okay? Romans chapter 1 in the back portion of that is all about how God has given us over to ourselves and in our stewardship and leadership of this world. We're not okay. Our hearts are not okay. The world, the relationships that we have, it's not okay. So by the time you get to chapter 2, and this is what Pastor Chuck talked about last week, he moves on from the subject of unrighteousness to self-righteousness. This is where Paul pulls the, the kind of the rug out from underneath them because they're like, yeah, this world's really broken, but basically they're thinking it's all about those other people. And so what Paul is saying here is, look, when it comes to the gospel, there's no room for judgment and condemnation. There's no room for looking down on other people. And in the second part of Romans chapter 2, he, he talks about how presumptuous God's people have become. And he does that by talking about circumcision. And we're gonna, you're going to think that we're skipping through stuff in Romans, but we're not. He's going to come back and talk about circumcision in chapter 4, and I'm going to deal with that then. Everybody's excited. Next week is about circumcision. <laughs> All right. And in the last part of this, there's all this talk about Jew and Greek and Jew and Greek and Jew and Greek. And you're like, hey, what's going on in that community? 
there was a lot of tension in the church and in society between these two groups. I'm not skipping over that. Paul's going to talk about that a lot and in depth, and we'll talk about the brokenness between groups of people in the midst of it. So when you think about Romans chapter 1 and 2, it's about unrighteousness and self-righteousness. I love the the scholarly study that was done this one time where uh, college students were brought in and there was somebody there with a piece of paper that looked like a little bit of a contract and it said on it, I blank agree to sell my soul upon my death for $2 to the name of whoever was the facilitator of that study. And then also on it, it would say, this is not a legal document and has no power at all. And at the very bottom of it, it said, if you would like at the end of this psychology experiment, you may take this piece of paper with you, shred it, tear it up, and throw it away. And so in essence, people were being paid to say, hey, are you willing to sign this to sell your soul to me for $2? And 77% of people refused to take the free money even though it was just a piece of paper. The atheist scholar Jonathan Haidt, who highlights this research, says that in moral psychology, we know, regardless of our background, because they've done this study in a variety of different cultures, we know that there are certain things that are just not okay. They're just not right. Follow-up study to that study, a majority of atheists who don't believe that they have a soul would not sign that piece of paper. There is something within us that tells us that's not okay, that's not right. And so the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 and 2 to describe what a mess that we're in is that we're not okay. We're not right. And it doesn't matter if you're the hedonist that's trying to pack as much pleasure or you're the judgmentalist who's trying to make yourself feel better by looking down on others. This is not how it's supposed to be. And so that leads us up to what comes next in understanding how the fault line of what is happening in the brokenness of the world is not just out there in the world that it's within us. One of my favorite authors of all time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was towards the end of his life and when he was in prison, he wrote this. So think about this. Nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. This is Nazi Germany. When he wrote this, he is even thinking of the terrible figure of Hitler. But he can't even look at Hitler and say that I don't see some of that that's in him that is also in me. So we're going to talk about sin. And as we're going to talk about sin, you need to know that when I work on a sermon, most of the time I work on a sermon by working on a word processor. But when you work on a sermon, you're noodling on it throughout the course of the week, and there are times when you're out and about, and you see 
people sinning and you need to write it down. <laughs> as sermon research, you see the people not scooting together in the church as they're instructed <laughs> by their spiritual leader and you got to write it down. So what was funny this week is that something would come to mind for me that I wanted to remember in the sermon. And what I tend to use as an electron, because I don't carry like a notepad everywhere I go. I carry my phone wherever I go. And so I use Apple Notes. And while I'm in there this whole week, every single time in Apple Notes, notice at the top it's highlighted the word sin. Every time I typed in the word sin this week in Apple Notes, it would always autocorrect it to the word son. <laughs> Apple Computing Company so doesn't believe that it would be possible that I would that I would be writing about sin in notes, clearly, you're talking about the sun. Because when we think about sin today, like our modern perspective is that's repressive, that's backwards, that's hate speech, that's all of those kinds of things. So what is sin? It's interesting, the word for sin is a very concrete term. Remember, these are ancient languages that we're dealing with, and most of them have very concrete images, specific images behind them. The word for righteousness is primarily a legal term. It is a positional term that tells you whether or not you are in right relationship with something or someone. Are you in right relationship with the IRS or not? Are you in right relationship with your electric bill this summer or not? Are you in right relationship with your friend, with your spouse, with all? So righteousness is about kind of position and relationship. Sin is an archery term, and it means to miss the mark. When you think about your life and how it's going... How are you at your target practice? How is it going? When you think about your life, are you hitting the bullseye? Is it a little off? Or is it a lot off? When you think about our community of Atlanta, when you think about the nation and the world that we live in, are we hitting the bullseye? Are we off? Are we off by a lot? Sin means to miss the mark. Now, what's interesting, when Paul starts to talk about sin in Romans chapter 3, he does so in such a way where at first, because we tend to think of sin in a very narrow way, and something gets lost in translation, the way that Paul talks about sin is starting in verse 9. Let's look at this here. What then, are we Jews any better off? God's people, God's covenant people, are we any better off in this situation? Not at all. For we have all char are already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, regardless of what your background is, are under sin. Now this is a little confusing. If you just think of sin as something that you kind of, you do, how can you be under sin? I want to show you a graphic to help you explain what sin is at times. <laughs> sin is being under a weight that you cannot bear. 
There is no way that this donkey can do what he is called to do under the weight of what he has been put underneath. So sin is not just an act you commit, although it is that. Sin is something that is in the world, in our fallenness, that we've fallen short. And it's a weight that we live under. And so Paul, continuing in verse 10 of chapter 3, describes the effects of living under sin. No one does the right thing. There isn't anybody with pure motives. No one fully comprehends or understands. It, it affects the way that we think. No one is truly seeking after God. God may be seeking after us, but no one is genuinely, purely seeking after God on their own. That everybody has gotten off course, turned aside, and that together we've taken beautiful things and we've, we've made them worthless. That no one is doing good out of pure motives all on their own. And then he continues in this way. And no one has ever put this in a Hallmark God card. Their throat is an open grave. In other words, what is coming out of us is decay and death more than life. They use their tongues to lie, to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I mean, does this sound like social media or what? Their feet are swift to shed blood. We are quick to violence and revenge. You know how in the 23rd Psalm it says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life? Here's the opposite of that. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace, this is where Paul will be crescendoing to at the very end. What does shalom look like for us? The way of peace they haven't even known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Godlessness what we say with our words, what we do with our actions. This is what it is like for us to live under the weight of sin. Of a life and a system where things are constantly off target and off mark. And so the famous part of Romans chapter 3 is this verse, and say it with me here. Let's say it in unison. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the summary statement. If you had to like put one thing from Romans 1 through 3 on a bumper sticker to describe those first three chapters, this is his conclusion. There's no distinction between one type of group and another, everybody's fallen short. And in this modern world, there'd be pushback. Be like, no, no, no. I mean, when you think about it, some people are better than others. I love the way that John Stott and Tim Keller use some illustrations that I've kind of modified to try to describe what this verse means. Let's say for a moment, with an image of Google Earth here, that you and two other people get on a boat. And you are going on this boat across the Atlantic Ocean from New York all the way over to London. Exactly halfway between New York and London, the boat starts to sink, and you and the other two people jump overboard. One of the other persons doesn't know how to swim at all. They immediately die. They drown. 
let's assume in this illustration that you're a moderately recreational swimmer. So you can swim for a little bit, but you're halfway between London and New York, and so you paddle around as long as you can for a while, but you still drown. You're still going to die. Let's assume the other person in the boat is Katie Ledecky, one of the greatest swimmers of all time. And she's going to swim for a long, 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 long time. And she's going to impress a lot of people by how long she can swim. But what's still going to happen to her? She's going to die. This is an uplifting sermon, isn't it? Listen, none of us live up even to our own expectations. I don't know a single person with true serum in them that I have a conversation with. I know it's true for me. I don't even live up to my own standards. Do you think honestly that we live up to the standard that is called the glory of God? The reflection of of what God has made and you and me. So something is getting lost in translation, and we need to retranslate the word sin. And I love how John Mark Comer expands it to be able to incorporate this. He says, in other words, when we think about sin, when we read about sin in the Bible, we have to understand that sin is something that's done by us, it is something that is done to us, and it is something that is done all around us. And we need in the condition and the acts of sin. We need to be rescued from it. There's a wonderful pastor in the Kentucky area who has written a book that's called When Your Way Isn't Working. And in this book, he talks about one of his favorite kind of pastoral counseling things to do is because people will come to him every once in a while and they'll talk about their situation and and I think he stole this from Dr. Phil but I don't know where he originally got it but he sits there and he lets someone talk for a while and then he just says so how's that working for you? Somebody comes out and pours out how bad their marriage is. Well how's that working for you? Somebody talks about how they're situation is so bad at work. How's that working for you? Somebody's talking about how messed up their relationship is with their extended family. How's that working for you? Over and over again. He's like, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to make somebody feel bad. I just have to ask the simple question, how's that working for you? His working definition of sin is when your way isn't working. So let me lovingly confront you as your pastoral counselor this morning. Take some inventory. Is your life really working the way that it's supposed to work? I don't know about you, but my heart has been broken by what happened with this image of the fires that very quickly and ravaged the tragic loss of life and property in a place that normally looks like paradise and now looks like this. And there's a variety of things that happen in a moment like this. There's the right and natural outpouring of support and prayers, encouragement, 
relief efforts, all of that thing. But have you noticed that there also is a lot of follow-up right now? There was the power company who had multiple reports sitting on desks said, hey, this isn't okay, this isn't right. This could go really badly. There were reports from all different kind of whether government agencies, insurance, or other dimensions that were saying, hey, we just need to let you know, we need to warn you that this, this could happen. It's horrible, it's tragic, I am not minimizing it, and it wasn't unexpected. There were lots of people that raised their hands and said, this is an untenable situation and it's not going to go well. We're super susceptible to it. Here, literally even the steps of like, here are the things that we could do that would prevent this from being such a tragedy. And yet one after one, they ignored the warning signs and spent the money instead of on that. Let's spend it on this. And before we shake our heads, are we really any different with our lives? You probably know of some reports that are filed away in your brain right now of like, you know, this probably isn't good. It's not working. It's not right. Paul's point in the first three chapters, pay attention to the warning signs. When I uh, used to live in California, we were in Southern California, and uh, every summer I would take some time of solitude, and I would go on some steady leave, and I would take at least a couple of days of that steady leave, and I would go backpacking in uh, the, what's known as the High Sierra portion of Yo- Yosemite National Park. This is a really great place to get away from Wi-Fi, internet, and uh, to be able to just think and pray and to spend time with God. So one time I went on a longer trip, it was in 2014, and uh, did more than just a couple of days. And so just for multiple days was saturated in the beauty and the grandeur of God. And I'm walking out of the backcountry. I'm tired. I want nothing more than a pizza to prove that God loves me. (laughs) And as I'm getting close to the trailhead and coming back into society along one of the granite cliff areas, I see this. I got mad. Who would walk into the grandeur of a national park and vandalize it? You know, it was around this time that I came across what to me is the most descriptive term for sin I've ever known. That sin is the vandalism of shalom. 
peace. That God has created something beautiful and you and me, your neighbor, your friend, your family, this community, this world. God has created this world but us uniquely in his image. And what sin is, is vandalism on that good gift, that amazing work of art that God has created. So here's where this is going to take us. In Romans 1 through 3, we've been talking about what a mess it is, and you're like, Pastor, is there any hope? And I'm here to tell you it is. In that very famous verse of Romans 3.23, it says, For all not only have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but what we're about to see as we go into 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 is that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That's a big word. We'll talk about that later. To be received by faith. Each of these little things, grace, gift, sacrifice, redemption. And so what we're going to move from is what a mess to what a gift. But I can't let you and I off the hook. If I just started a series in Romans 4, you wouldn't understand what Paul was trying to say. And that is, is that we truly do miss the mark. And that we truly are a people who are off target. And that we are truly a people who are under the weight of sin. And that we are truly a people who cannot get to where we need to be under our own power. And that we are truly a people who need to pay attention to the warning signs of the destruction that is possible around us. And yet we are truly a people who are a part of a beautiful world and the image of our own maker and that we need to come to terms with the fact that we are vandalizing it each and every day. And so, Father, we ask in this moment of conviction before we turn to the nature of your grace for the honest assessment that our lives are not right, they're not okay. And will you help us to have not only greater aim, but for us to be able to hit the bullseye and will you enable us to be the kind of people who by your power that is at work within us, that you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we pray for the rescue that is to come, that is happening in this room right now. As we come to terms with the weight of sin that is pressing us down and the own brokenness that is within us, until that moment that we can honestly sing and say and proclaim that because of you, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.